Warning, binge mode contains adult content. You know, like fingering wands and such. (laughs) It's a line that's in one of these chapters. So if you don't want to hear about fingering wands, then check out one of the other great podcasts on the Ringer Podcast Network. One more warning. Binge mode contains spoilers. If you don't yet know why you need to try the tinned pears Mm. and the spaghetti bolognese, please proceed. With extreme caution. And now, binge mode. Then Hermione's voice came out of the blackness for the third time, sharp and clear from a few yards away. Harry, they're here. Right here. And he knew by her tone that it was his mother and father this time. He moved toward her, feeling as if something heavy were pressing on his chest. The same sensation he had right after Dumbledore died a grief that had actually weighed on his heart and lungs. Welcome to Binge Mode Harry Potter. I'm Mallory Rubin, executive editor of TheRinger.com. Oh, it's a great website. It's a great one. Y'all. Joining me today, now that he's finished sifting through the mound of dirty laundry. Gross. The sword is in here. <laughs> must be. Just remove some of the soiled underwear and you'll find it. Yes. It's Ringer Senior Creative and your headmaster, Jason Concepcion. Ooh, that smell. Can you smell that smell of bagshot rotting? Let's freshen things up, though, with some binge mode Harry Potter, where we're exploring every facet of the Harry Potter universe. Whether or not you drop the photo of the merry face thief, please subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And please rate and review us five points and stars for binge mode. Please go ahead and follow us on Twitter and Instagram at binge underscore mode, a.k.a. the underscore. Join our Facebook group, which is just for binge mode fans and which is an excellent place to share memories from your favorite night in Godric's Hollow. Also, why don't you go ahead and head over to the ringer.com slash shop. Check out the swag people. Super comfy, super flexible, and especially if you're hiding a snake inside your corpse. You need that neckline. It really, really works for that, you know? The last couple times on Binge Mode Harry yes. Potter, we explored how secrets and then persuasion shaped the films Fantastic Beasts and Where to Find Them and Fantastic Beasts, The Crimes of Grindelwald. And last time on our Deathly Hallows pod, we explored how entering the belly of the beast shapes chapters 12 through 14 of Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows. Yes. Catch up on those Beasts episodes if you haven't listened to them yet. Check out our YouTube video on the film as well. On today's episode, we are resuming or Hallow's Binge, by diving into chapters 15 through 17. Requisite spoiler warning for today's binge as yes. always. While those chapters are today's primary focus, we will be going deep. Deep, 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 deep. On details from all seven books and eight, ten films, and the wider Potter canon. Oh. Taking the entire series into account from the moment we learn to apparate together under our cloak. So grab some muggle hairs, brace for the snow, keep your ears peeled for carolers because it's time to head to Gatrick's Hollow.
Mal, remove this foul addition at once. Remove it, I say. You are ruining a great work of art. And I have plot points to get to, so let's offer up a brief refresher on what actually happened. In Hallow's chapters 15 to 17, we're climbing aboard this scarlet steam engine of plot, the Hogwarts Express. Choo-choo! Harry, Hermione, and Ron continue the camping portion of their Hallow's adventure. But instead of yielding progress in the Horcrux hunt, it instead produces grumpiness, Oof. frequent arguments. One night after the group overhears some key information about Gryffindor's sword and the goings-on at Hogwarts, these trends escalate, and Ron, who needed his Snickers, storms out in anger. <laughs> Don't we all, though? I know. <laughs> Just give the guy a Snickers and take the locket from him and let him calm down. They really should do a cut of that Snickers campaign with Ron <laughs> during the camping days. It would be compelling. <laughs> More time passes, and Harry and Hermione make no further headway in the hunt. They decide to travel to Godric's Hollow, where they see the graves of Kendra and Ariana Dumbledore and Harry's parents, as well as a statue and memorial commemorating the Potter deaths. Beautiful. Then, disguised as Bathilda Bagshot, Nagini finds the pair and beckons them to Bathilda's house, where she calls Voldemort. He flies to the house, but after a skirmish, Harry and Hermione escape just in time, and Harry sees through Voldemort's eyes the events that killed his parents. He wakes up again hours later in Hermione's care to learn additional tragic news. The fight with Nagini severed his wand nearly in two, rendering it impotent and irreparable. Mal, I thought you knew what you'd signed up for. And that gets us to this episode's big idea, so let's dive into the pensive to sift through our thoughts. Defining theme, chapters 15 through 17 of Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows is Testing Faith. Chapter 15, The Goblin's Revenge. Harry wakes early and searches alone for, quote, the oldest, most gnarled and resilient-looking tree he could find. He wants to bury Moody's eye in a fitting place, wants to find some small way to honor the man who meant so much to so many. The Order wasn't able to say a proper farewell to Moody. They weren't even able to recover his body. This war effort is about fighting for good, working to ensure that family and friendship and community and free expression can flourish. And the inability to do that for Moody, to celebrate his life on the occasion of his death, represented an existential challenge to the fundamental values that Harry and co. are working to uphold. This may not be a fully realized send-off for Moody. And Grabbing the eye in the first place may have jeopardized Harry's ministry mission, it's true. But it's still a way for Harry to take some of the power back, to refuse to let the enemy dictate the terms of his grief. It's a lovely gesture that speaks to Harry's commitment, even in the face of terrible oppression, to stand up for what he believes is right. It also devastatingly foreshadows another burial to come. Dobbies. What's more, Harry's decision to stage this small memorial alone speaks to the isolation building in his chest, even as Ron and Hermione still stand by his side. Moody struggled to trust, warned against overlooking the ever-present creep of threats both seen and undetected. But he also devoted his life to protecting the whole, to sacrificing literal pieces of himself so that others could thrive and feel safe. He and Harry never exactly bonded, one of the limited years they spent together was with an imposter Moody, after all. But Alistair still taught Harry plenty, in all his many forms. Preaching constant vigilance, warning of the perils of trusting too deeply, suffering when there was no one around that he could trust at all. 
After Harry buries the eye so synonymous with the man who wore it, looking always for danger, preaching eternal mindfulness, he marks the tree bark with a small cross and thinks, quote, it was not much, but Harry felt that Mad-Eye would have much preferred this to being stuck on Dolores Umbridge's door. He returns to the tent to wait for Ron and Hermione to wake and begin planning their next steps, for they all agree on not remaining stationary for much longer. They need to keep moving, keep one step ahead of the encroaching danger. They leave the site on the outskirts of a small market town where they can try to pursue Ron's dearest dream, beacon sandwich. <laughs> or really any kind of sustenance. Yes. Our pals are famished. After setting up camp, security measures and all, their new site, Harry heads out under the cloak to try and scrounge up a meal, but he's thwarted in shocking fashion. Quote, he had barely entered the town when an unnatural chill, a descending mist, and a sudden darkening of the skies made him freeze where he stood. Dementors. Dementors that stunningly prevented Harry from conjuring a Patronus. I couldn't make one, Harry pants when he returns. Wouldn't come. Couldn't get that full out, guys. <laughs> this is worrying. Since he learned the skill, Patronuses have been a hallmark of Harry's abilities. Advanced magic that he stages with such consistent aptitude and prowess that it derails ministry hearings and earns him bonus points from an exam administrator. Just the prior day, he conjured a Patronus forceful enough to help him rescue hordes of Muggleborns from the ministry's cruelty. What's changed? Harry, Ron, and Hermione are out in the world now, more alone than ever before. They can't doubt this skill that they've relied on for so long. From the book, their expressions of consternation and disappointment made Harry feel ashamed. It had been a nightmarish experience, seeing the Dementors gliding out of the mist in the distance and realizing as the paralyzing cold choked his lungs and a distant screaming filled his ears that he was not going to be able to protect himself. Harry's faith is constantly tested in myriad respects, but his faith in his ability to perform magic in this particular form of magic has buoyed him for so long allowing him to find the confidence not only to lead others, but to believe in himself. This experience instantly takes him back to those helpless early days in his third year when he felt inadequate, ashamed of his susceptibility, unsure of why he was so vulnerable, and even more uncertain about how to regain control. That's not a headspace he can afford to occupy again, not right now, and not one that Ron or Hermione can stand to see him in. It'll shake them all too instantly and too fully. They're worried for different reasons. Ron's hungry. And that is no small thing. Hermione's afraid about what Harry's inability to conjure Patronus represents. She asks what happened, noting that he managed perfectly just a day ago, but Harry doesn't know. Quote, he was afraid that something had gone wrong inside him. Yesterday seemed a long time ago. Today he might have been 13 again, the only one who collapsed on the Hogwarts Express. Ron reacts physically, palpably, kicking a chair in his anger. I'm starving, he shouts out complaining about the feeble helping of mushrooms that's comprised all of their sustenance since their ministry escape and his injury. He nearly bled to death, as he points out here. He's weak. This desire is very real and very human, a base human instinct, in fact. But it's also a product of relativity. Ron's life has not been perfect. He's always felt overshadowed by his brothers and his friends. And that feeling of inadequacy will rear its debilitating head later in this very chapter. But he never had to worry about the basic sustenance of life, about food, about shelter, about the comfort of knowing what tomorrow would bring. He suffered and struggled. He's lost people. He nearly died more than once, but he could always count on a full belly, thanks to Molly or the Hogwarts house elves, and a warm bed, thanks to the same. He knew what he was giving up when he decided to go with Harry. He chose to. 
We'll be there, Harry, he said in Prince, and it was an unrivaled show of friendship and love, a selfless and pure vow made not with wands and ropes of fire, but with words and all that they mean. But it's been hard. It's been trying. And now Ron's faith in the very rhythms of everyday life are being tested. And alongside that, his faith in his own abilities. How can he know how he'll cope with what he's never had to face? Harry is hurt by Ron's outburst, and Ron in turn feels helpless that he can't take on more while injured. Remember, magic isn't a cure-all. Sometimes it can't solve a problem. And sometimes the fact that it can't makes that problem seem all the more insurmountable. Thankfully, as the bickering begins to mount, with Ron noting that his arm's in a sling and Harry saying, that's convenient, Hermione has an epiphany, the locket, the horcrux, the shard of Voldemort's evil soul hanging around Harry's neck. Harry removes the chain in response to Hermione's command from the book. The moment it parted contact with Harry's skin, he felt free and oddly light. He had not even realized that he was clammy or that there was a heavy weight pressing on his stomach until both sensations lifted. This is amazing to think about, given that the corrosive force eating away at Harry's spirit is also, though he doesn't know it yet, inside of him. Hermione always throw asks Harry if he thinks he's been possessed, but the long-ago checklist that Ginny got from their good friend, Tom, still applies. Harry can remember where he's been, what he's done. Hermione's not convinced, and rightly so. Ginny's experience isn't necessarily the only form of possession. And, of course, we'll learn in time that Harry's had a sliver of moldy voldy in him since that fateful night in Godric's Hollow. She doesn't think it's safe to wear the locket, but Harry's insistent. They work too hard to get it to risk losing it now. They settle on a timeshare. They'll wear it in turns, hoping to minimize the ill effects by passing it around. Great, said Ron irritably. And now we've sorted that out. Can we please get some food? <laughs> they decide to relocate, given the Dementor's presence, and settle in a field on a farm where they find eggs and bread. Hermione agonizing over the morality of it, despite leaving money under the coop. But their bellies full at last and their spirits temporarily lifted. From the book, this was their first encounter with the fact that a full stomach meant good spirits, an empty one, bickering and gloom. Harry, of course, has experienced hunger before. Knew it all too often while growing up at Privet Drive, where his first desire when left alone was to sneak food from the fridge. Hermione's cranky, but reasonable. Ron, quote, Hunger made him both unreasonable and irascible. Whenever lack of food coincided with Ron's turn to wear the horcrux, he became downright unpleasant. And he's not just unpleasant, he's unhelpful. From the book, he did not seem to have any ideas himself, but expected Harry and Hermione to come up with plans while he sat and brooded over the low food supplies. Unfortunately, Harry and Hermione don't know where to go to find more horcruxes, nor how to destroy the one that they already have. This is very new for them. Since they were precocious 11-year-olds enthralled by the mystery of Nicholas, Nicola, Flamel, they've been able to find the answers that they sought, thanks to Hermione's relentless research or their gumshoe steadfastness or a well-timed conversation with an in-the-know friend. When they couldn't trust their wits, they could trust their determination. And when they couldn't count on one bit of magic, they found another. But the riddle of Dumbledore's will has fiercely tested both their faith in themselves and in the mission that Dumbledore set and the information he provided, finding and destroying the Horcruxes. They're operating off any shred of information Dumbledore shared with Harry, including the idea that Voldemort would have hidden the Horcruxes in places that mattered to him. And so they recite the names of possible locations like Arya Stark running through her kill list in the night. <laughs> the Orphanage, Hogwarts, Borgen and Burks, Albania. Hermione eliminates Albania because of timeline considerations which we will discuss more in The Seven later today. Harry eliminates Borgen and Burks because, as proprietors of dark magic, he says they would have recognized the Horcrux in their midst. 
Though that does lead us to wonder what a shard of the Dark Lord's soul would fetch on the open market. Quite a bit. (laughs) Just right there on a shelf next to the Hand of Glory. (laughs) Imagine that. (laughs) Ask for price. (laughs) Gift wrapping available? Yeah. (laughs) But Harry is not ready to dismiss the idea of Hogwarts as a hiding place. And of course, it will prove to be one with Ravenclaw's diadem nestled in the Room of Requirement. But Hermione opposes Harry's stubborn belief by saying that Dumbledore would have found it. Harry, however, knows that's not true. Knows because Dumbledore is good as said it. Quote, Dumbledore said in front of me that he never assumed he knew all of Hogwarts' secrets. Again, more on this in the seven as well. Dumbledore's failure to give Harry more information about how to proceed has pushed his trust to the brink. But weirdly here, the idea that Dumbledore might not have known everything is actually a source of comfort for Harry. A reminder that they might not have to search into the far recesses of the earth to find what they seek. Ron scoffs at the idea of Hogwarts being so important to Voldemort, saying his school with heavy derision in his voice. So when Harry says, quote, it was his first real home, the place that meant he was special and meant everything to him, Ron cuts deep with his reply. This is you know who we're talking about, right? Not you. That's savage. Yeah. Ron is wearing the locket at this moment, which is informing some of this hostility. And as we've said many times before, Harry's friends often do him a credit and a service when they question him and push him. But this is cold. A too apt observation about the similarities between Harry and Voldemort. And a comment that turns one of the great sources of joy and pride in Harry's life, Hogwarts, briefly into something dirty. Harry concedes the Hogwarts point for the time being in light of Hermione's reminder that Voldemort didn't get the job that Dumbledore denied him and thus didn't get a chance to find another founder's object. Again, wrong, but reasonable to suppose that. The trio heads to London to check under the cloak the orphanage where Riddle once lived, the orphanage where Harry traveled in Dumbledore's memory and saw a pale, handsome boy pronounce to his quivering fingers that he was destined for greatness and glory. It's gone, though, bulldozed and replaced by office buildings. Hermione suggests digging in the foundation weekly, But Harry knows, has always known, that Voldemort wouldn't have chosen this spot. This was a place he hated. From the book, the place Voldemort had been determined to escape. The cave was connected to the orphanage, yes, but to the moments when young Tom Riddle was allowed to break free of his constraints, to tap into the magic and evil within and find himself in others' pain. The orphanage itself was a prison, a reminder that his parents didn't want him. But they gave in to, quote, that shameful human weakness, death. Death might be more welcome than life on the road with Ron. Our pals keep moving through the countryside, setting up their security each night, clearing out all signs of their presence each morning. As they bounce from woods to mountainside to cove to cliff to moor, they pass the locket every 12 hours from the book as though they were playing some perverse slow-motion game of pass the parcel, where they dreaded the music stopping because the reward was 12 hours of increased fear and anxiety. Harry notices that a scar prickles most often when he's wearing the necklace. Quote, sometimes he could not stop himself reacting to the pain. Though he cannot know it, cannot understand it, the Horcrux inside him is calling to its brothers. The connection between his mind and Voldemort's that the Horcrux within has forged, magnifying in the presence of its peer. Whenever Harry winces, Ron asks him what he sees. And it's the face of the thief who stole from Grigorovich. The face that Voldemort is harping on, obsessively. The face, though Harry doesn't know it yet, of Grindelwald. Ron doesn't hide his disappointment in these moments, his despair that Harry isn't seeing anything about Ron's family or the Order. Quote, but after all, he, Harry, was not a television aerial. And frankly, Voldemort not harping on, say, Ginny 
is a good thing because it means that she's safe from him for now. The merry-faced thief, though? Harry is sure he's in danger, but also sure, based on Voldemort's obsessive mental loitering, that he doesn't know who he is. And it's worth asking how that's possible. Hermione's also impatient at any mention of the thief, and Harry begins to suspect that she and Ron are talking about him. They huddle in his absence. They fall silent at his approach. Paranoia is creeping in, but also some real awareness, because Harry is not imagining this. It is happening. And it is eating away at him, causing him to lose trust in himself as those who gave up everything to stand by his side start doubting why they did it or how ready he was to live up to that promise. Quote, Harry could not help wondering whether they had only agreed to come on what now felt like a pointless and rambling journey because they thought he had some secret plan that they would learn in due course. Ron was making no effort to hide his bad mood, and Harry was starting to fear that Hermione, too, was disappointed by his poor leadership. Harry is no stranger to hearing his friends question his particular method of the moment, but them wondering if he has a method at all is new, and it feels like shit. Their belief in him has sustained Harry's belief in himself, and if one begins to crumble, so will the other. Autumn arrives, adding weather to their worries. They're not interacting with other people or learning about the war effort. They're not making headway on the Horcrux hunt, and they're not having any more luck with food, despite Hermione, quote, getting better at identifying edible fungi. It's important. It's very important. Ron, who candidly is lucky that Hermione didn't go all Alma from Phantom Thread on him here, Mm. notes that the MILF, quote, can make good food, which makes it even more annoying, can make good food appear out of thin air. This is not only supremely ungrateful toward Hermione, who's really trying her best and is doing a lot, guys, but also ignorant. As Hermione goes on to explain, no one, not even the supremely powerful buxom MILF, (laughs) can make food appear. And when Ron says, quote, don't bother increasing this, Hermione notes that Harry caught the fish and she cooked it. Quote, I notice I'm always the one who ends up sorting out the food because I'm a girl, I suppose. Uh No, it's because you're supposed to be the best at magic, shot back Ron. Just as the tension mounts even further with Hermione declaring that Ron can hunt and cook their next meal, Harry demands silence. He hears voices, but their sneakoscope isn't going off and they've cast all the protective charms to ensure they're not seen or heard. But, quote, If these were Death Eaters, then perhaps their defenses were about to be tested by dark magic for the first time. Not even the fear of gray fish can compare to this. This is the first time since their flight from the ministry that they've had to wonder if they're about to do battle. Had to wonder whether the efforts they've made are enough to withstand the force of the foe. With the rushing river masking too much sound, Hermione withdraws extendable ears from her bag. And with the ears in play, they can hear clearly, at last, a man's voice. Dirk Cresswells, we'll realize. And as the smell of baking salmon reaches them, they hear a familiar name to Harry. Griphook. Goblins, they realize. Griphook and Gornick will learn. Then they hear another man's voice, one vaguely familiar to Harry. He can't place it at the time, but this is Ted Tonks. And they're sharing stories of their time on the run, clearly all recently united as a group. Ted says he had to flee because he refused to register as Muggleborn, but that his wife, a pureblood, who, of course, we and Harry have met, should be okay. Quote, and then I met Dean here. What, a few days ago, son? Yeah, said another voice, and Harry, Ron, and Hermione stared at each other, silent, but beside themselves with excitement. Sure, they recognized the voice of Dean Thomas, their fellow Gryffindor. 
And this moment is really wrenching, both a reminder of how starved Harry, Ron, and Hermione are for contact with the rest of the wizarding world and of how desperate things have gotten. Mm -hmm. Dean, a boy who should be at Hogwarts, completing his education and kissing girls, not Ginny. Lots of girls. (laughs) And trying to make the Quidditch team is fighting to stay off the radar and alive because he can't prove that his father, who left when he was a kid, is a wizard. Ted, who should be preparing for the arrival of his first grandchild, can't return to his home for fear of endangering his family. Cresswell, one of Slughorn's favorites, and the former head of the Goblin Liaison Office, is now liaising with goblins in a very different fashion, and is only alive because after being captured, he managed to best one of these series' preeminent punching bags. Dollish. Quote. It's very tough for my guy, Dollish. I was halfway to ask you about when I made a break for it. Stun Dollish. <laughs> and Nick broom. This is so this savage. Is, yeah, this is tough. It was easier than you'd think. <laughs> I think Dollish, Dollish, I think it's like the, I think the effects are compounding now. I think he's, his bell is still rung from the time that Dumbledore owned him this is in the office. so tough. I just think that he, the guy has never been the same. And he never will be. Grant is going to beat him later in this book. Very, very tough. <laughs> the reprieve, however, will prove short-lived with Dirk, Ted, and Gornick perishing in mere chapters. Griphook and Dean have roles to play beyond that. Mm-hmm. But things are so bleak now that mere proof of life, just a whisper of a word from their world, even if it's gleaned through magical years and even if the tidings are dire, feels like a life raft in a storm for Harry, Ron, and Hermione. But this group isn't just downloading for Harry and Co.'s benefit. They're catching up each other. When Ted says that he thought the goblins were, quote, for you-know-who on the whole, he's quickly corrected. This is a wizard's war, Griphook says, and we learn that both Gornok and Griphook left Gringotts and went into hiding after refusing to perform certain duties. Quote, Gringotts is no longer under sole control of my race, Griphook says. I recognize no wizarding master. Then in gobbledygook, he and Gornok share a private joke that Cresswell then translates. Quote, there are things wizards don't recognize either. His illusions continue. Quote, Didn't manage to lock a Death Eater up in one of the old high-security vaults, I suppose. If I had, the sword would not have helped him break out. And, quote, Dean and I are still missing something here, said Ted. Quote, so is Severus Snape, though he doesn't know it. It transpires, aha, that some Hogwarts students tried to steal Gryffindor's sword from Snape's office. And that one of them was Ginny. Our trio clutch their extendable ears, quote, as tightly as lifelines as they listen. They have, of course, been longing for the sword since the reading of Dumbledore's will. And any mention of Ginny is both terrifying and thrilling. Snape caught the students, then sent the sword to Gringotts for safekeeping. The goblins laugh as they tell this, reveling in the knowledge they now share, that it's a fake. They think they're in possession of facts that Snape doesn't have. But of course, the ultimate truth gleaned in the prince's tale is that Snape and Dumbledore's portrait conspired together to hide the real sword and get it to Harry, which Snape will do in the Silver Doe. Voldemort and Bellatrix and the Death Eaters, however, are the ones being duped by Snape, by the, quote, excellent copy of the sword and by the goblins, who we will learn here did not reveal that the sword being stored in the Lestrange family vault is a Fugazi. (laughs) Talk of Snape quickly gives way to talk of Dumbledore and Harry. And what he hears wilts his heart. After Dean stands for him as the real deal, the actual chosen one, Dirk says, that's what folks want to believe, him included. Quote, but where is he? Run for it by the looks of things. Harry's no stranger to the media, the government, and even regular people doubting him, slandering him. But there's something about hearing this type of doubt that shrinks Harry's spirit. 
He's risking everything, his very life, to fight Voldemort. And he's on the front lines, waging a war of the heart and the mind and the soul and of the wand as well. So know that people are questioning him because he's not operating in the spotlight. That they think he's hiding rather than working to restore order is crushing. Thankfully, Dean's not the only one vouching for Harry. Ted speaks up and says that Harry's evasion of capture is a real achievement. Quote, I take tips from him gladly. Well, he's right over there. Their meal concludes and their voices fade as they drift away, leaving Harry unable to form words to express the way he's feeling about what he's just heard. Ginny, he manages. The sword. I know, Hermione shouts. And she reaches for her bag and fishes out Phineas Nigelus's portrait to ask him about the sword, of which, Hermione notes, his other portrait, the one in the headmaster's office, has a damn good view. She calls out to Phineas, finally earning his arrival with a please, and then immediately blasts a blindfold onto his portrait's eyes so that he can't see where they are. Devilishly tricky work Mm -hmm. from our girl. Phineas shrieks in pain and protest, but the second Harry speaks, he goes silent. Can that possibly be the voice of the elusive Mr. Potter, he asks. And in time, we'll realize that Phineas, working with Dumbledore's portrait and Snape, has been on the prowl for any clue as to Harry's whereabouts. Harry wastes no time asking right away about the sword. And when Ron speaks in response to Phineas's snide remark about his sister, Phineas asks, who else is there? He's clearly hunting for intel, but our friends think that they're the ones gathering clues. And they learn more quickly when Phineas reveals that Luna and Neville, naturally, are the ones who tried to steal the sword with Ginny. Or, as Phineas calls them, the idiot Longbottom and the love good oddity. The love good oddity has a ring to it. (laughs) This sounds like like our band name. It's a great band name. (laughs) It's like a Bell and Sebastian album title. (laughs) Our pals righteously defend their friends, including Hagrid, whom Phineas names an oaf. And then Hermione asks if anyone has been by to take the sword for a cleaning or something. The reply, dripping with derision, unwittingly alters the course of their journey, their Horcrux hunt, and the war. Muggleborns, Phineas says. Goblin-made armor does not require cleaning, simple girl. Goblin silver repels mundane dirt. He's very mean. Imbibing only that, which strengthens it. Dun, dun, dun. Oh, but that's not all. Has dear, sweet Phineas seen the sword removed from its case? I'm so glad you asked, Hermione, my dear. He says, I believe that the last time I saw the sword of Gryffindor leave its case was when Professor Dumbledore used it to break open a ring. Try to remember what it felt like to read this for the first time, to feel the puzzle pieces slide into place. Dumbledore used the sword to break open a ring. Could only be Gaunt's ring, the Horcrux. The sword slays Horcruxes. That's why Dumbledore left it to Harry in the will. The request wasn't futile. It was a beacon, a light. At the end of a path, Dumbledore knew Harry would find a way to follow. As Phineas exited his frame at last following his final desperately misguided proclamation, Professor Snape has more important things on his mind than the many eccentricities of Albus Dumbledore. The same revelations readers experienced wash over Harry and Hermione, drunk on the euphoria of their discovery. Harry, Hermione cried. I know, Harry shouted. Unable to contain himself, he punched the air. It was more than he had dared hope for. They waited so long, doubted so often whether their faith would be rewarded, and it has been. Playing back Phineas's words about goblin-made blades and bibing that which makes them stronger, they realize that the sword has been impregnated, the bitch, with basilisk venom from when Harry thrust it through Slytherin's monster. Bronn would be so proud. What symmetry? What poetry? The venom of Slytherin's monster can help undo Slytherin's heir. Dumbledore didn't give the sword to Harry because he still needed it to destroy the locket. 
quote, so he made a copy and put a fake in the glass case and he left the real one where? The forgiveness is fleeting. Why, Harry wonders right away. Hadn't Dumbledore just told him all of this when he was alive? Told him where the real sword was, just in case. He plays through the possible locations, just as he had with Voldemort and the Horcruxes. Where are the Dark Lord hidden his slivers of soul? And where had his would-be slayer secreted the weapon that could destroy them? Harry, of course, knows more than he realizes. Long ago, in the Chamber of Secrets, after the impregnating question, Dumbledore gave Harry crucial insight about the sword's magic and the attributes that allowed Harry to call it to him. As a trade theories, an animating possibility arises. If Snape doesn't know the sword's a fake, it means Dumbledore didn't trust him completely after all. Never mind that this isn't true and that Snape, of course, not only knows but will play a central role in getting it to Harry— it's enough that the idea rekindles for Harry the possibility of life in degrees. From the book, he thought even more cheered at the thought that Dumbledore had some reservations, however faint, about Snape's trustworthiness. And in that cheer, he turns to his best friend to ask Ron what he thinks. Here we go. Buckle up, folks. <clears throat> Ron? Ron? Harry looked around. For one bewildered moment, he thought that Ron had left the tent. Then realized that Ron was lying in the shadow of a lower bunk, looking stony. Oh, remembered me, have you? He said. This fucking guy. <laughs> Isaac has been waiting 51 episodes for us to get to this. In the exhilaration of sifting through Phineas's words, parsing their meanings, searching for any actionable intel, Harry and Hermione got lost in the rush and in each other, neither noticing Ron's total absence from their fervent sleuthing. That failure to notice, of course, is as grating to Ron as the nature of what he's heard. This series of events has brought his anxieties, always bubbling just below the surface, bursting to the fore. His fear that he might not be enough to figure out the mission, to keep his friends and family safe, to win Hermione. The rain begins to beat down on the tent, echoing their heartbeats and their mounting worry as they try to puzzle out the source of Ron's irritation. When Harry demands clarity for Ron's sour mood, Ron, who, quote, looked mean, unlike himself, says, quote, don't expect me to skip up and down the tent because there's some other damn thing we've got to find. Just add it to the list of stuff you don't know. Wow. That is so brutal. Now, outwardly, Harry's defense mechanisms kick in as he parrots Ron's words back to him with altered emphasis, the way that we all do when we're in one of these conversations and are just stalling for time trying to get our bearings. But inwardly, quote, dread doused Harry's jubilation. Ron was saying exactly what he had suspected and feared him to be thinking. Ron begins to list his grievances, his mangled arm, the lack of food, the campsite accommodations. Quote, I just hoped, you know, after we'd been running around a few weeks, we'd have achieved something. This is what Harry's been dreading hearing. Confirmation of his own shame spoken aloud by one of the only people who really knows the scope of the challenge facing him. One of the only people who chose to stand with him despite the seemingly impossible task that lie ahead. Harry says as much to him here over Hermione's quiet Ron. And there's such pain in Harry as he speaks these words aloud, but also mounting anger, a sense of betrayal. Harry's realizing that Ron doesn't trust in him. But he's also wondering for the first time and in a meaningful way, a way that transcends even something as dour as the Triwizard fight, if he can trust Ron as well. I thought you knew what you'd signed up for, Harry says. And when Ron says, I thought I did too, Harry channels his despondence into a challenge, rerouting the hurt he's feeling back towards Ron, hoping to make him feel the fool instead. 
So what part of it isn't living up to your expectations, he asks. The lack of the five-star hotels? The failure to check a horcrux off the list every other day? He continues, did you think you'd be back to mummy by Christmas? And this is a turning point in the argument. Yeah, Harry doing what Ron did to him mere moments ago about his attachment to Hogwarts, turning a thing they both love and cherish into something the other one should feel lesser for desiring and needing. Harry loves Molly as well. But he's also spent the bulk of his life understanding how the absence of a mother's ever-present love feels. So there's some resentment and some bitterness here in his words, a longing for something he never had as much as a desire to punish Ron for balking when things got tough. There's also a clear effort to build up the wall before Ron can launch his next grenade, but no brick or mortar, let alone a verbal shield, can stop what Ron says in response. We thought you knew what you were doing! Shattered Ron, standing up and his words pierced Harry like scalding knives. We thought Dumbledore had told you what to do. We thought you had a real plan. The sword of Gryffindor may as well be in the tent with them. Ron may as well be stabbing Harry with it. Because Harry isn't sure what he's doing. Right. And he's been quite clear about that. Has spent increasingly regular moments wondering why Dumbledore didn't tell him what to do. Didn't help him forge a plan. Ron and Hermione's commitment to him, belief in him, steady presence by his side allowed him to maintain through his faith in their friendship, faith in himself and in the mission. And that's eroding and quickly gone. Harry, as per Dumbledore's wishes, has always been honest with Ron and Hermione about the Horcrux song. Never pretended that he knew where they were. He never hid the visions of Voldemort from his friends and never tried to pretend that his decisions were anything more than hunches. Well-informed by years of his intimate connection with Voldemort, yes, but hunches nonetheless. Ron's sudden about face hurts because it stabs at Harry's own feelings of inferiority, weakens his faith in himself. What if he doesn't know what he's doing? What if he's leading his friends into disaster? What if his best friend doesn't have faith in him? If his best friend doesn't have faith in him, why should anyone? Hermione screams Ron's name over the rain, but he ignores her. And as Harry speaks, he feels, quote, hollow, inadequate. He tells Ron he's been straight with him from the start. They shared everything Dumbledore told him, everything he, Harry, knows. And he reminds him that they have found the locket. They have achieved something. And when Hermione asks Ron to take that very locket off, saying he wouldn't be talking this way if he hadn't been wearing it all day, Harry says, yes, he would. He, quote, did not want excuses made for Ron. He tells them both, Hermione too, that he's noticed their whispers, guessed at their doubts. And when Hermione tries to assuage him, Ron says, quote, don't lie. You said it too. Damn. You said you were disappointed. You said you thought he had a bit more to go on. Wow, I think we caught the snitch, guys. <laughs> Marietta? <laughs> she cries at Harry that she didn't say it like that. And the tears pour down her face as the rain pelts the tent with increasing fervor. Quote, the excitement of a few minutes before had vanished as if it had never been. A short-lived firework that had flared and died, leaving everything dark, wet, and cold. The sword of Gryffindor was hidden they knew not where. This line is so sad. And they were three teenagers in a tent whose only achievement was not yet to be dead. This is what pain and doubt do. This is how they corrupt one's perspective, choking faith like a weed consuming a flower in bloom. Harry, Ron, and Hermione have achieved more than should have been possible. The words that they overheard during the fireside salmon bake of mere moments ago were true. Being alive is not an only achievement. It's a magnificent one, one that so many others have been unable to manage. But they aren't just fighting for themselves. Their weight is heavier than that. Their burden is the fate of the world. And so nothing will feel like enough until it's over. 
and it will never be over if they're not holding each other up. Go home then, Harry tells Ron and he shouts, yeah, maybe I will. He brings up what the Fireside Five said about Ginny and notes how Harry's cavalier reaction shows a detachment from reality. He implies that Harry's lack of worry about what that might have meant shows a lack of care and compassion, full stop. That in his rush to decode the clues, he failed to act with his heart. Hermione tries to be the voice of reason, saying that the line surely meant that Bill's scars and George's missing ear and Ron's spattergroid. Oh, you're sure, are you? Ron says. Right then, well, I won't bother myself about them. It's all right for you two, isn't it? With your parents safely out of the way. This is just brutal stuff from Ron. On the one hand, we feel for Ron. We understand the source of his misery and even what he's trying to say. His family's on the front line, has been the whole time. They've bled. The odds of them making it through the war without anyone dying are quite small. But they all know that, and they've all chosen to fight. Remember Sirius's words to the twins in order about Arthur. Harry, Ron, and Hermione aren't the only ones who get to make choices. But worrying for one's family is the most human of feelings. And Ron's distance, his separation, this is new to him. Alien, exponentially expanding the terror anyone would feel in this situation. He knows they're in peril. He doesn't know if they're okay. He doesn't know what they're facing each day. But to imply that Hermione and Harry aren't suffering too, haven't made terribly difficult choices, is unfair and cruel. Hermione modified her parents' memory so they wouldn't remember that she exists. She masked the very fact of her existence from their minds. She sent them away from their home, from their jobs, from their daughter. The only reason she doesn't have to wonder if they're okay is because they're just not a part of her life anymore. And even then, the fear still eats away at her that one day Voldemort's followers will find them. And Harry, well, you can't really play the parents card with Harry, Ron. My parents are dead, Harry shouts. And that's why they're all here. That's why he didn't grow up with the Molly-esque meals on the table and a warm, comfortable bed. It's why he's been marked for this battle with Voldemort and why, as Dumbledore helped him see, he'd have chosen to fight it, whether or not he'd have been marked for it. Mine could be going the same way, Ron yells, and Harry shouts, then go! It's not a question this time. It's a demand. And as Harry once again mocks Ron's longing for his mom, Ron goes for his wand and Harry does too. But Hermione is quickest. Quote, Protego, she cried, and an invisible shield expanded between her and Harry on the one side and Ron on the other. All of them were forced backward a few steps by the strength of the spell. And Harry and Ron glared from either side of the transparent barrier as though they were seeing each other clearly for the first time. (sighs) Harry felt a corrosive hatred toward Ron. Something had broken between them. Man, this is inarguably one of the most shocking and excruciating moments in the series. Something had broken between them. We didn't think that anything could ever break between Harry and Ron. Since they found each other on their very first ride to Hogwarts, they have been inextricable from each other's lives. And that will ultimately continue to prove true. Ron will return, guided back both by his own heart and Dumbledore's hand. But right now, For the first time over the course of their friendship, it feels like they've reached an impasse that they can't bridge. This doesn't feel like the first task of the Triwizard Tournament when some honest introspection and ensuing honest words of contrition could mend the wound. This feels unmentable. It feels like something is broken because something has. Their eternal, unquestioned trust in each other, their promise, both unspoken and pledged aloud, to always be the other's friend, confidant, advisor, guide— to be their second, as Ron promised way back in Sorcerer's Stone. Friends question each other. They push each other. But you have to, at some level, be able to maintain the promise on which all friendships are really built. I won't leave when you need me. 
And that's what they just lost. Leave the Horcrux, Harry says, from across Hermione's barrier. (laughs) This part kills me. And Ron pulls the chain off his neck. And as he throws it into a chair, he turns to Hermione. In a moment that we did not think could get any worse, somehow becomes even more gutting. What are you doing, he asks. What do you mean, she says. Are you staying or what? And the unspoken part of that is the real question. He's not really asking, are you staying? He's asking, are you coming with me? I, she looked anguished. Yes, yes, I'm staying, Ron. We said we'd go with Harry. We said we'd help. And Ron's reply is all of his fears boiled down into a sentence. All of his feelings of inadequacy and unworthiness condensed into six words. All of his pain compressed into one of the saddest statements that these books ever bring us. I get it, he says. You choose him. Oh, man. Hermione isn't choosing Harry in the way that Ron means. But that is, of course, part of what he fears. He's never felt good enough. And here it is, in his mind. Proof. Proof that he isn't. Proof that she doesn't want him. Confirmation. In his moment of desperate need for affirmation, that just like he wasn't as good as his brothers, he's not as good as his best friend. Hermione made a promise to Harry, and she is honoring it, honoring both her friendship with him and her duty in this war. But she loves Ron. She wants to be with him. And the only greater force than her misery as she calls after him is the magic of the shield charm that she cast to try to make a piece that proved unmakeable. She shouts, Ron, no, please come back, come back. But by the time she takes down the barrier, he's left, disapparated. Quote, Harry stood quite still and silent listening to her sobbing and calling Ron's name amongst the trees. But he's gone, just like so many others are. And now a quick break to hear advertiser content sponsored by Dell about how binge-watching has changed everything. Kayla loves TV. I like to tell people that I invented binge-watching TV shows. I'm in it for the long haul. And chances are, you're a lot like Kayla. Over 70% of Americans are binge-watchers, and they feel a deep connection to both the characters and the screens they're watching them on. Dr. Emil Steiner is an assistant professor who studies binge-watching at Rowan University. With the newer screens that are now available because of the crispness, the higher fidelity, they allow viewers to see a more realistic world. And that social realism creates greater feelings of connection with the people on those screens. According to Steiner, it's not just screen size and clarity that creates that deeper connection. The technology today allows viewers to control not just what they watch, but where and when they watch it. And this is great news for Kayla. I used to feel truly embarrassed about the amount of binge-watching that I engage in, but I feel grateful that the culture is totally supportive of this type of hobby that I have. If you're a person who can never say no to one more episode, check out the Dell XPS 13 with Dell Cinema Technology. For incredible sound, color, and streaming, it's the laptop for people who watch things on their laptop from Dell Computers. Thanks to our sponsor, Dell. Learn more about Dell Cinema's incredible color, sound, and streaming on the XPS 13 at dell.com slash XPS 13. 
That's Dell.com slash XPS 13. And now back to binge mode. Chapter 16, Godric's Hollow. The next day when Harry wakes, it takes him a moment to register that Ron is really gone from the book. He hoped childishly that it had been a dream, that Ron was still there and had never left. Moments like this are so important for the reader's connection to Harry. As we've said before, we can't relate to trying to hunt down slivers of an evil soul, but we all know what it feels like to wake up and crave with impossible desperation, a reset that can never come, a reprieve from our own misery. And there's no redo here. It wasn't a dream. He looks to Ron's empty bunk and, quote, it was like a dead body in the way it seemed to draw his eyes. Ron and Harry have been constant companions since they met on the Hogwarts Express ahead of their first year at school. Some of Harry's happiest moments were spent at Ron's family home. The litany of their adventures is too long to recount. They've done everything together. And now Ron is gone. And what's more, Harry thinks he's not going to be able to find them again because their protective enchantments have made it so. For Hermione, meanwhile, losing Ron, the person she loves, is like losing a piece of her heart. He looked her in the eye and gave her the choice. Harry and the mission are me. And then he turned his back and he walked away. We've often joked about Ron's contributions to the trio, to their adventures and the overarching battle against Voldemort. It's oftentimes easiest to take the measure of a thing when it's gone. And so it is now as Harry and Hermione struggle to carry on without him. Something intangible, but clearly necessary, is missing. The heart has gone out of it, leaving only the grim mission itself. Harry and Hermione, eyes red, clearly suffering from a lack of sleep and from relentless tears, eat breakfast in silence. They need urgently to move on. But Hermione's dragging her feet, merely going through the motions, hoping that Ron will change his mind and return. Hermione's wounded heart keeps hearing approaching footsteps, but it's only the rain. From the book, every time Harry imitated her, looked around— for he could not help hoping a little himself and saw nothing but rain-swept woods. Another little parcel of fury exploded inside of him. He could hear Ron saying, we thought you knew what you were doing, and he resumed packing with a hard knot in the pit of his stomach. Oh, man. At last, they can't delay any longer. Grasping hands, they disapparate, but the second they arrive, Hermione lets go, and little gestures like that say so much. Sure enough, upon arriving at their new hideout, Hermione collapses into tears, mourning Ron's now seemingly permanent separation from them. And Harry can't bring himself to comfort her, even though he knows he should. Quote, everything inside felt cold and tight. He strolls off through the heather, unable to shake the memory of Ron's face as he left, and he casts the protective enchantments that Hermione usually does. Harry and Hermione don't talk about Ron at all for the next several days, though at night, Harry can hear Hermione crying when she thinks that he's asleep. Her loyalty and solidarity are priceless treasure, Mm -hmm. but it cost her something equally dear to her in order to give. Harry begins to pass the hours staring holes into the Marauder's map, quote, waiting for the moment when Ron's labeled dot would reappear. It never does. So, quote, he found himself taking it out simply to stare at Ginny's name in the girls' dormitory wondering whether the intensity with which he gazed at it might Mm. break into her sleep, that she would somehow know he was thinking about her, hoping that she was all right. Harry and Hermione spend their days trying to deduce where Gryffindor's sword might be hidden. But in the absence of clarity, Harry's fury with Dumbledore mounts. Quote, there were moments when he did not know whether he was angrier with Ron or with Dumbledore. And Harry can't help but conclude but admit to himself that Ron was right about that at least. Quote, Dumbledore had left him with virtually nothing. They had blundered into one Horcrux, sure. But the clues for finding it were literally 
write on a crumpled piece of paper in Harry's hand and then write in front of them in Grimwald Place. They're not going to get that lucky again. They don't know how to destroy that one, how to get the sword that will enable them to do so. And the other pieces of Voldemort's soul, they haven't figured out any other locations. Losing faith in Dumbledore and Ron, two of the constants in Harry's life since he re-entered the wizarding world, has robbed Harry of whatever shred of confidence he had left. Quote, hopelessness threatened to engulf him. He was staggered now to think of his own presumption in accepting his friend's offers to accompany him on this meandering, pointless journey. He knew nothing. He had no ideas. And he was constantly, painfully on the alert for any indication that Hermione, too, was about to tell him that she had had enough and that she was leaving. Wow, I feel so seen right now. (laughs) The days stretch grimly on. Hermione takes to bringing out Phineas's portrait just for company. Think about that. Wild. <laughs> but, I mean, imagine if they had a Walburga's portrait with them. <laughs> Think about that. <laughs> just for something to break the silence. Quote, as though he might fill part of the gaping hole left by Ron's departure. Man, when you're talking to Phineas in your spare time, it is rough. <laughs> Fucking rough. Maybe he has some tips on edible fungi. Come on. From his visits, they learn that Snape is facing constant mutiny from a group of students. The remains of the DA, Harry knows. Quote, this scant news made Harry want to see Ginny so badly it felt like a stomach ache. As Phineas talks, Harry allows himself to dream for, quote, a split second of madness about running back to school to help them fight Snape. That at least would feel real and deliberate, concrete, within his control. He thinks of being fed and having a soft bed. The very things he was mocking Ron for not Uh knowing how to live without. Human things. But then he remembers that he's undesirable, number one. And he can't return to Hogwarts. Can't go anywhere. The weather turns even colder and impacts them more directly as they beat an ever-changing path across the landscape. Never daring to stay in one location for long. They track time through what they see, spotting Christmas trees through the windows of homes they pass. After an unusually hearty dinner, spaghetti bolognese and canned pears. Mm. Hermione's still doing the cooking, by the way. And with the horcrux off their bodies for a brief moment, Harry decides to try once again to convince Hermione that they should dare, despite the dangers, to visit Godric's Hollow. But before he can even get it out, she says, Harry, could you help me with something? She hands Harry her copy of Beetle the Bard, which Dumbledore left her in his will and which she's been poring over. Look at that symbol. At the top of the page over the printed runes that Harry assumes comprise the story's title is a symbol. Quote, like a triangular eye, its pupil crossed with a vertical line. Harry reminds her that he can't read runes, but it isn't a rune, she tells him. She hasn't been able to find it in the syllabary, and she's discovered that it's been drawn in with ink by hand. Dumbledore's hand, we'll realize. She asks Harry if he's ever seen it before, and after initial no, it dawns on him that, yes, he has. It's the symbol that Xenophilus Lovegood was wearing at Bill and Fleur's wedding. That's what Hermione was thinking, too. But Harry's next comment shocks her. Then it's Grindelwald's mark. What? And he tells her that Vic the Dick fervently believed that Xenolove was wearing Grindelwald's mark, a mark that had been carved into the walls at Durmstrang. Hermione, a true scholar, says she's never read anything about Grindelwald having a mark. And as they note here, not only has Hermione never heard of it, but Scrimgeour, the Minister of Magic and a former Auror, surely well-versed in the dark arts he might face, didn't recognize it in the book either. Mm -hmm. That's very odd. If it's a symbol of dark magic, what's it doing in a book of children's stories, Hermione says? If it was widely associated with Grindelwald, wouldn't Scrimgeour have spotted it? This is sincerely interesting to contemplate in terms of Dumbledore's relationship to him and their shared quest for the Hallows. Because that 
of course, is what this symbol will soon be revealed to be. The sign of the Deathly Hallows drawn by hand above the tail of the three brothers to guide Harry to awareness, not only of Harry's future choice, but of Dumbledore's past mistakes. Anyone who has experienced sadness and loss of faith knows that being idle makes it worse, amplifying the feeling of isolation and worthlessness. Moving forward isn't just important in terms of the Horcrux hunt. It's important for simply feeling alive, feeling part of the world. So this clue, the first in who knows how long, raises our friend's spirits and pushes the memory of Ron's absence from the forefront of their minds. It also gives Harry new confidence to make his pitch. I've been thinking, he says, I, I want to go to Godric's Hollow. And to his immense surprise, Hermione agrees. Did you hear me right? He asks. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> of course I did, she says, and she drops a signature Hermione research nugget. The sword, Harry. Dumbledore must have known you'd want to go back there. And I mean, Godric's Hollow is Godric Gryffindor's birthplace. And Harry's like, what? <laughs> Godric's Hollow, Godric Gryffindor, Gryffindor's sword. Don't you think Dumbledore would have expected you to make the connection? Harry doesn't know what to expect with Dumbledore anymore. Yeah. And he has not made this particular connection. He had not even been thinking about the sword when he asked to go to Godric's Hollow. He wants to see his parents' graves. He wants to see the house where Voldemort ripped apart his family, the place where his whole life changed. He wants to speak to Bethilda, who knew them and knew Dumbledore too. The showdown with Voldemort is drawing inexorably closer. Harry can feel it. He wants to better understand where he came from before he faces that and better understand the man who set him down this course. Remember what Muriel said, Harry asks? And this is a very fraught moment because the last thing that Harry wants to do right now, just as the hunt is threatening to pick up again, is call Hermione's attention to anything Ron-related. But he pushes past this, mentioning that Muriel told him Bathilda Bagshot still lives in Godric's Hollow. And Hermione issues a eureka gasp that Harry, who is so on edge, initially mistakes as a response to danger. Harry, what if Bathilda's got the sword? What if Dumbledore entrusted it to her? Hermione says. Harry finds this unlikely. Quote, if so, Harry felt that Dumbledore had left a great deal to chance. Well, (laughs) correct. Dumbledore never told Harry about his friendship with Bethilda. And given what Bethilda knew about Dumbledore's time with Grindelwald, we'll come to understand why he kept this quiet. But faith is a delicate thing. When it's strong, it's as sturdy and immovable as a mountain. But when it's shaken, weak, it can feel as if a stiff breeze could extinguish it entirely. So Harry chooses not to voice his objections to this theory. Not now, not when he's so close to getting to visit Godric's Hollow, where he desperately wants to commune with his parents to see where they lived. If Hermione wants to go there too, but for a different reason, why stop her? Quote, yeah, he might have done, Harry says. (laughs) So are we going to go to Godric's Hollow? Indeed they are. Hermione, worn down by the stress of recent days, leaps at the chance to apply her fierce intellect to something other than replaying Ron's exit over and over again in her mind. It's time to prep for a mission. We'll have to think it through carefully, Harry, Hermione says. She quickly launches a recitation of the things they'll need to do in preparation for the trip. Practice disapparating together under the invisibility cloak, getting up to speed on disillusionment charms, collecting hairs for polyjuice potion to ensure maximum concealment. And Harry lets her talk, but his mind is elsewhere. He's elated. Whatever dangers await him, Harry is going home, going to the place where, quote, but for Voldemort, he would have grown up to the place where all the memories that a normal boy would have would have formed for him. Quote, the life he had lost had hardly ever seemed so real to him as at this moment when he knew he was about to see the place where it had been taken from him. 
And after Hermione goes to sleep that night, he pulls out the photo album that Hagrid gave him, looks at the photos of the parents he lost and is so desperate to connect to. They wave up to him from the pictures, quote, which were all he had left of them now. They depart a week later, with Hermione taking ample time to prepare, given her correct certainty that Voldemort will expect Harry to go there. They arrive in Godric's Hollow at night, having used Polyjuice to disguise themselves as a middle-aged married muggle couple. Harry's wearing the horcrux around his neck. He doesn't want to enter his home village in hiding, melting away their footprints under the cloak, and so they cast it off and walk through the village, snow crunching underfoot and sitting heavily on the roofs of the cottages. Harry wonders which, if any of these, his parents lived in, or whether he'll be able to see his parents' house at all. From the book, he did not know what happened when the subjects of a Fidelius charm died. They follow a lane around a curve and find themselves in the village square, strung with festive lights, and at the center, what looks like a war memorial, and they hear laughter from a pub and carols from the church. Life is going on all around them. Harry, I think it's Christmas Eve, said Hermione. Is it? Since Harry's arrival in the Wizarding World, Christmas has been a momentous time, a time of deepening friendships and secret gifts. He received his invisibility cloak during Christmas break in his first year and the message in Dumbledore's secret hand to, quote, use it well. He and Ron and Hermione had their first polyjuice adventure during their second year's holiday break. The following Christmas, Sirius Black anonymously gifted Harry his firebolt. In their fourth year, there was the Yule Ball. Mm. Harry spent the Christmas of his fifth and sixth years at Grimwald Place and at the borough, surrounded by his growing family. And now... He and Hermione don't even know what day it is. They're too removed from other people and the rhythms of everyday life. They'll be in there, won't they, Hermione says, looking toward the church behind which rests a graveyard. Quote, Harry felt a thrill of something that was beyond excitement, more like fear. Now that he was so near, he wondered whether he wanted to see after all. Hermione, sensing his emotion, takes his hand and leads him across the square. But she shouts and stops before they reach the graveyard. As they pass the war memorial, its true form was revealed. Not a list of names, but three people. A family. Quote, a man with untidy hair and glasses, a woman with long hair and a kind, pretty face, and a baby boy sitting in his mother's arms. Snow caps their heads. And Harry is transfixed by this unexpected discovery and the sight of himself and his parents memorialized in such a fashion. Quote, how strange it was to see himself represented in stone, a happy baby without a scar on his forehead. A symbol of the wizarding community's esteem. Finally, after Harry drinks in the sight of his family, whole, intact, undisturbed, he pulls himself away. And he and Hermione walk on into the graveyard, the singing from the church tightening Harry's throat as it causes memories of Hogwarts Christmases to course through him. The colors from the church's stained glass windows play over the snow as they walk. And Harry exclaims when he sees the name Abbott on a grave. Could be some long-lost relation of Hannah's, he shouts. His hunger for connections to those he knows are as palpable as the ice beneath his feet. And Hermione begs him to keep his voice down. They're disguised, but they still need to be careful. And they continue to explore. When Hermione, from two rows away, calls out, Harry, here. And Harry thinks that she's found his parents. But Hermione has found the graves of Kendra and Ariana Dumbledore the late headmaster's mother and sister, and etched into the stone is the inscription, where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. We spoke in our first Deathly Hallows pod about how J.K. Rowling's faith, though ever-present in the series, reveals itself most fully in Deathly Hallows, right from the opening epigraphs. And we see these religious overtones again here with this passage from Matthew 6.21. On her open book tour in 2007, Rowling spoke about this, saying, quote, they're very British books. 
So on a very practical note, Harry was going to find biblical quotations on tombstones. But I think those two particular quotations he finds on the tombstones at Godric's Hollow, they sum up, they almost epitomize the whole series. Did Dumbledore choose this passage? We, like Harry, have to assume so. And how fitting, based on what we'll learn about his choices and his regret, about how what he coveted in life briefly led him astray and forever altered the way he thought about valuing the most precious things in life or death, family, friendship, love. My faith is sometimes that my faith will return. It's something I struggle with a lot, Rowling said during that same tour, speaking about her own belief and how it informed the story that she chose to tell. Dumbledore struggled too, losing himself in temptation, finding the righteous path after incomparable heartache, and never trusting himself not to stray again toward the pull of power, the pull of the hallows. Dumbledore only realized what his treasures were, where his heart really belonged, after those things were gone. Dumbledore was never like Grindelwald, never like Voldemort. He didn't want the Hallows because he feared death. He would never have made a Horcrux. He wanted to be brilliant, to be great, to be free. But he also knew a lesson that those lost in the darkness never really learn, a lesson that he passed down to Harry. To the well-organized mind, death is but the next great adventure. He may have lost himself on Earth, but he found himself in time to learn those truths, to find faith albeit a faith that would be tested, that his treasure could be, as William Penn said in the book's opening epigraph, ever-present because immortal. That kind of clarity about Dumbledore is a long way off for Harry. Right now, on this night, staring at these words on the tombstone, he realizes only that it seems like Rita Skeeter and Muriel's info was pretty spot on. They clearly knew what they were talking about, and he is crestfallen. Dumbledore's family and Harry's family had, in fact, shared a connection to Godric's Hollow, had lost loved ones here, loved ones buried in the same graveyard, and Dumbledore had never mentioned it, never thought to bring it up from the book. They could have visited the place together, Harry thinks to himself. For a moment, Harry imagined coming here with Dumbledore, of what a bond that would have been, of how much it would have meant to him. That kills me. It seems, Harry thinks bitterly, that Dumbledore thought Harry's mission more important than sharing this personal connection. Harry's resentment towards Dumbledore has been growing all book, but this is a shift. Less frustration at mission details he never learned, and more of a dawning, horrifying realization that the mission might be all that mattered to Dumbledore. And then perhaps Dumbledore didn't share these personal connections because he didn't care about Harry or their relationship outside of a job that needed to get done. And this is, of course, false. What Dumbledore said to Harry in order was true. If anything, he cared too much in a way that often blinded him. But as we learn in King's Cross, he also carried deep, blinding shame about his own history and his own mistakes. He didn't want to tell Harry about his family because doing so would mean telling Harry what happened to his family and what role he played in that. He reads the tombstone inscription again but can't figure out what the words mean. One more choice of Dumbledore's that in this moment feels impenetrable to Harry. Hermione asks if Harry's sure that Dumbledore never said anything about it, but he cuts her off with a sharp no. What he's seen has not made him feel closer to his longtime mentor, but further apart, divided by things that should have brought them together. From the book, he turned away, wishing he had not seen the stone. He did not want his excited trepidation tainted with resentment. They continue their search, and another gravestone catches Hermione's eye, leading her to mistake it briefly for the Potters. The name is almost illegible. But the symbol carved into the stone looks very familiar. Harry, Hermione says, that's the mark in the book. 
Harry hurries away to continue searching for his parents, but this will prove to be the grave of Ignotus Peveril, Harry's ancestor, and one of the three brothers in the tale of beetle lore. One of the makers of the Deathly Hallows, the mark in Hermione's book, the mark on Xenophilius's pendant, the mark on the gaunt ring, the mark on this headstone. Harry can't focus on possible clues like this now. He continues searching, moving deeper into the graveyard as the night wears on and the carols cease in the church. And then he hears Hermione. Harry, they're here, right here. And he knew by her tone that it was his mother and father this time. He moved toward her. Two rows back from where Kendra and Ariana rest is a headstone of white marble, just like Dumbledore's. There's no need to crouch or to squint. Quote, it seemed to shine in the dark. He looks at the words upon it. James Potter, born 27 March 1960, died 31 October 1981. Lily Potter, born 30 January 1960, died 31 October 1981. We know how young James and Lily were when they died, but there's something about seeing the dates carved forever into stone, that 21-year gap between their first and last breaths, that really drives home the cruelty and tragedy of how very young they were, united here forever in death in a way that they never got to enjoy being in life. And below the names and the dates, there's an inscription, another Bible passage, this time from 1 Corinthians 15.26. The last enemy that shall be destroyed is death. This seemingly so similar to the philosophy of Voldemort and his Death Eaters hits Harry like a fist. Isn't that a Death Eater idea, he asks Hermione? Why is that there? And Hermione attempts to ally Harry's mounting panic. It doesn't mean defeating death in the way the Death Eaters mean it, Harry, said Hermione, her voice gentle. It means, you know, living beyond death, living after death. Recall what Dumbledore said to Harry about Voldemort. In Half-Blood Prince, it is the unknown we fear when we look upon death and darkness, nothing more. Recall what he said to Harry about James in Azkaban. You think the dead we have loved ever truly leave us? Recall the way he speaks of the eternal protection of love, even beyond the grave, and implores Harry when they meet in King's Cross not to pity the dead. Think of how the tale of the three brothers will end when we finally get to hear it. And then he greeted death as an old friend and went with him gladly and equals They departed this life. Voldemort wanted to conquer death because he considered it shameful and weak, a base tendency, an outcome to fear and try to cheat. His only treasure was his own greed. He had no heart. James and Lily, like Harry, knew a greater truth. And in King's Cross, Dumbledore will tell Harry, who has just willingly sacrificed himself for his friends, that he is the true uniter of the Hallows, the true master of death. Quote, because the true master does not seek to run away from death. He accepts that he must die and understands that there are far, far worse things in the living world than dying. Harry will not use the resurrection stone to try to cheat death. He will use it to guide him toward it so that others may live, just as Lily died to save her son. Again, recall Barrack's words to Jon Snow, death is the enemy, the first enemy and the last, but we all die. The enemy always wins and we still need to fight him. Recall Harry's words to himself as he sat at Dumbledore's funeral. It was important, Dumbledore said, to fight and fight again and keep fighting, for only then could evil be kept at bay, though never quite eradicated. Fighting death does not mean fearing it. Trying to destroy it doesn't mean trying to avoid it. There's a higher understanding here that Voldemort will never even try to reach, but that Harry will find. Yet, even as Hermione speaks about living after death, Harry's being swept away by his emotions from the book. But they were not living, thought Harry. They were gone. The words, whatever they mean, don't change the fact that his parents 
bones are there beneath his feet rather than living, breathing bodies from the book. And tears came before he could stop them, boiling hot, then instantly freezing on his face. And what was the point in wiping them off or pretending he let them fall, his lips pressed hard together, looking down at the thick snow, hiding from his eyes the place where the last of Lily and James lay, bones now, surely, or dust, not knowing or caring that their living son stood so near, his heart still beating, alive because of their sacrifice and close to wishing at this moment that he was sleeping under the snow with them. Hermione grabs his hand and he returns the pressure even though he can't bring himself to look at her. He wishes that he'd brought something for their grave, something for them, and Hermione raises her wand and magics a wreath of Christmas roses which Harry places upon the grave. He puts his arm around the person who never left his side, who shared this moment of unrivaled grief with him, and together they walk back through the gate. Chapter 17, Bathilda's Secret. After advancing mere feet, Hermione stops them. She spotted something, a figure in the darkness watching them. And Harry stares into the black, nothing. He can't see. And anyway, why should they be concerned? They look like muggles, Harry points out. Quote, muggles who've just been laying flowers on your parents' graves, Hermione notes, and also audibly using each other's names. Incredible spycraft here by by H and H. (laughs) Nervous now. They exit the graveyard and put on the cloak, moving past the pub and the singing voices within, down a dark street past houses decorated for Christmas. And there at the end, Harry finds, among rubble and waist-high grass, his parents' home. Quote, the Fidelius charm must have died with James and Lily. The right side of the top floor has been blown apart, and Harry knows that must be where Voldemort's curse rebounded. Quote, he slipped a hand from beneath the cloak and grasped the snowy and thickly rusted gate, not wishing to open it but simply to hold some part of the house. And his touch activates a sign which rises from the ground. It reads, On this spot on the night of the 31st of October, 1981, Lily and James Potter lost their lives. Their son Harry remains the only wizard ever to have survived the killing curse. This house, invisible to muggles, has been left in its ruined state. (laughs) This makes me sad. As a monument to the Potters and as a reminder of the violence that tore apart their family. And the placard is covered with 16 years' worth of graffiti from grateful wizards and witches, including new shiny messages from those wishing Harry luck, saying they believe in him, saying they stand behind him. And Hermione is outraged at what she perceives to be the defacing of this monument. But Harry is touched, touched by this visible outpouring of gratitude and support and by the faith that some clearly maintain in him even now, even today. But he breaks off at the approach of what appears to be an old woman, bundled against the cold. Harry is sure that she's no muggle. She can see the house. Moreover, it seems as if she can see and recognize Harry and Hermione, despite them being disguised with polyjuice and being underneath the invisibility cloak. She raises her arm and beckons them. A million reasons tell Harry to run, but he can't help, and he wants to move forward. From the book, even her ability to sense them suggested some Dumbledore-ish power that he had never encountered before. Voldemortian, it will turn out, but only one explanation makes sense to Harry in the here and now. Are you Bathilda? He asks, surprising Hermione. And the woman beckons them again. She hobbles off and they follow her to a house. The first thing Harry notices upon entering is the smell. The woman or her home or both has a foul scent. A decaying body, we will soon realize. And the house is a mess, covered in a layer of dirt. She stops, her knuckles blue, thick, milky cataracts filming her eyes, and Harry wonders how she can even see him. Bethilda? 
Harry asks again. She nods, and suddenly Harry can feel the locket around his neck awake and pulsing. Quote, did it know, could it sense that the thing that would destroy it was near? The truth, of course, is that three horcruxes are now there, together. The locket on Harry's chest, the snake waiting inside of Bethilda's corpse, and the secret horcrux inside Harry. The locket, so close to its fellows, is, quote, pulsing through the cold gold. Another massive Harry is a horcrux clue. Mm-hmm. She seems to ignore Hermione entirely, but calls Harry into the next room, and he follows over Hermione's objections. Because after all, this is his good friend, Bethilda Bagshot, here. <laughs> real, real echoes of my good friend Tom here. A lot of echoes. <laughs> it's very tough for Harry. It's a very tough look for Strange, my guy, foul-smelling woman who can see us through all these magical devices <laughs> calling me into the next room. Yes, I will follow you, my friend. Gaga, can I call you Gaga? <laughs> wonder why she smells like, quote, meat gone bad. But don't ask if it's safe to wander blindly into her empty house. She totters around the room, clumsily lighting candles, not with magic, but by hand. A clue here, of course, because the snake within can't use the wand. But Harry's like, I got to help this lady, my friend. <laughs> lighting the final candle atop a chest on which stands numerous pictures. Dusting them with the spell, he notices that many are missing. The ones Rita took for her book, Harry soon realizes. One of the photos that's still present immediately grabs his attention. It's the, quote, Merry Face Thief from the vision Voldemort gleaned while interrogating Grigorovich. That face was familiar to him then, and now the pieces snap into place, and Harry remembers where he first saw this person. In the copy of The Life and Lies of Albus Dumbledore in Umbridge's office, where he saw this boy arm in arm with young Albus. Grindelwald will soon learn. Harry, his voice shaking, asks Bathilda who this man is. Again, asks again and again, but she doesn't answer. The Horcrux beats faster as they make eye contact. And as Hermione asks him what he's doing, he exclaims that this is the man, this is the thief. The thief who stole from Grigorovich, the thief that Harry fears could be in danger now because of what he knows about what Voldemort is seeking. Bathilda doesn't answer Harry but gestures for him to follow her upstairs, refusing to allow Hermione to join them. And Harry is like, of course, I shall follow my good friend Bathilda upstairs because she, of course, might have the sword. (laughs) Yes, wherever you want to go, my friend Bathilda, do you wish me to lay with you in the darkness of your bedroom? I shall follow. At least there's no near corpse of an 11-year-old there this time. (laughs) One difference. There's literally just an animated, smelly dead woman in front of you. Gotta with, leave with when it smells milky like that. cataract eyes and the blue knuckles also very bad. Blue knuckles <laughs> also smells like a rotting corpse is beckoning me to follow her. I must go. <laughs> Mathilda leads Harry to a darkened bedroom, rank with the smell of rot. And what Harry identifies as a festering chamber pot. Apparently, even when Bathilda was alive, she was not adequately vanishing her shit. Very tough. <laughs> you are Potter, she asks. It's all so clear in hindsight. Yeah, this right? is bad. Why right. this is happening. Why it is playing out this way. Bathilda insisted that Harry go upstairs alone so that she could communicate with him in parcel tongue, avoiding Hermione's detection. Harry is not picking up on that here. He confirms who he is. Quote, Harry felt the horcrux beating fast, faster than his own heart. 
three of Voldemort's hearts yes. in one room, racing against each other. He asked Bethilda, you got anything for me, girl? <laughs> what you got? <laughs> Quote, man, this still scares me. I've read this like this 900 is, this times is a, at this a point. It's still, chapter. still scares thrilling. me. Quote, and then she closed her eyes and several things happened at once. Harry's scar prickled painfully. The horcrux twitched so that the front of his sweater actually moved. Again, a massive clue here. The dark, fetid room dissolved momentarily. He felt a leap of joy and spoke in a high, cold voice. Hold him. The only way that the warning signs could be any clearer here is if Harry's good friend Tom were literally right there in the room demanding yes. that Harry stay still and allow himself to be murdered. <laughs> And Voldemort will be there in a hot second. He's coming. He's on his way. Still, despite everything that just transpired, Harry, laser-focused on his he mission. He is just blinkers on. Asks again, have you got anything for me? <laughs> My good friend, what do you got? Other than a exit sign. Yeah. Over here, she says, and draws his attention. I guess this is just to, like, lay it on now. Like, look at this laundry. <laughs> Dressing table, atop which laundry sits in a shapeless heap. Ah, the old dirty laundry. I mean, they're just fucking with him now, right? (laughs) (laughs) It's literally like, look at this shiny thing, only the shine is like shit stains on underwear. It's like, (laughs) I mean, wow. And desperate to find the sword, Harry moves toward the pile and looks into it for anything, a hilt, a ruby, anything. And in that split second, quote, She moved weirdly. He saw it out of the corner of his eye. Panic made him turn, and horror paralyzed him as he saw the old body collapsing and the great snake pouring from the place where her neck had been. Whoa! Whoa! The guinea has just erupted out of Bethilda's moldering corpse. Rotten meat smell explained. Oh, was that what it was? (laughs) (laughs) As Harry raises his wand, the guinea strikes, biting his forearm, sending his wand flying, robbing the room of the little light that the wand had been casting. And then the snake's tail whips him, knocking the wind out of him. And the guinea is thrashing at Harry with tail and tooth. And he is just managing to avoid a lethal blow. Of course, she doesn't want to kill him. She wants to hold him for Voldemort. Downstairs, Hermione hears the struggle and calls out, Harry? But he can't even draw enough breath to respond. Harry, did something bad happen up there with the smelly woman? <laughs> with the milky eyes and the blue-white knuckles? And then the guinea is on him, coiling around his body, pinning him to the floor. Hold you, hold you. He tries to summon his wand, but to no avail. And he feels the horcrux pressing hard into his flesh. Quote, mm-hmm. a circle of ice that throbbed with life inches from his own frantic heart. And as he feels that metal heart beat outside of his body, the piece of Voldemort within him, though he does not realize that this is the source, opens a portal back into the Dark Lord's mind. And he feels that he is Voldemort, quote, flying with triumph in his heart, without need of broomstick or Thestral. Suddenly he's free. And as his senses swim back into focus, he sees Nikiti fighting Hermione as one of her curses shatters the windows and Harry ducks to avoid the shower of glass. He steps on his wand, which he snatches up to re-enter the fight. Boy, girl, and snake battle, but the agony in Harry's scar is an unmistakable signal. Voldemort is close. He shouts a warning to Hermione as Nagini thrashes chaotically. Harry dives for Hermione, pulls her across the bed. 
from the book. The snake reared again, but Harry knew that worse than the snake was coming. This is terrifying, a crashing realization that Harry and Hermione walked into the exact trap that Hermione had foreseen and that they might not get out of. As Harry leaps and the snake lunges, Hermione screams, Confringo! And the force of the spell ricochets around the room, blasting heat and carnage around them. Harry, pulling Hermione, leaps from the bed to the table and then right out of the window. And there's no choice, no other prospect of escape. They twist in midair to try to apparate as they're falling, quote, into nothingness. Her scream reverberating through the night. And then Harry Scar splits his head in two. And he is Voldemort. Out of his body, out of his mind, he runs across the bedroom and sees himself and Hermione disguised as the muggle couple, quote, twist and vanish as he screams with rage. Quote. And his scream was Harry's scream, and his pain was Harry's pain. We and Harry are Voldemort more fully than we have ever been before. Not a glimpse of action here, not a fleeting feeling. We are fully embedded, one with him, not needing to decipher passing stimuli, but exposed in full to his rage and terror in this moment and to the history that informs it. Voldemort cannot believe that Harry has escaped him again, and here, of all places, here, where he failed to kill Harry as a baby, quote, within sight of that house where he had come so close to knowing what it was to die, to die. And we see from his perspective what we've heard him talk about before in the graveyard on the night of his resurrection in Goblet of Fire when he spoke of, quote, pain beyond pain, and of being, quote, ripped from my body, I was less than spirit, less than the meanest ghost. Here we have access directly, internally, to recollections of the moment when he realized his Horcrux experiments had worked. Quote, but if he had no body, why did his head hurt so badly? If he was dead, how could he feel so unbearably? Didn't pain cease with death? Didn't it go? We see him relive the night when he arrived at Godric's Hollow to try to kill Harry, walking past the children dressed for Halloween, feeling as he moved to act on the prophecy that would ultimately prove to be his downfall, quote, not anger. That was for weaker souls than he, but triumph, yes. He had waited for this. He had hoped for it. We see him resist the urge to casually, needlessly murder a boy who complimented him on his costume. Such restraint. And he moves toward the potter's home, able to see it, because of the Fidelius charm broken by Pettigrew's treachery, the occupants inside completely unaware that their friend has betrayed them, that they're enjoying their last moments of life. From the book, they had not drawn the curtains. He saw them quite clearly in their little sitting room, the tall, black-haired man in his glasses making puffs of colored smoke erupt from his wand for the amusement of the small, black-haired boy in his blue pajamas. The child was laughing and trying to catch the smoke to grab it in his small fist. Lily enters the room and James hands Harry to her dropping his wand as he does, stretching and yawning. And this is what Voldemort looks upon and decides he must end. This is the last moment that James, Lily, and Harry shared together before violence and hatred and fear tore their family apart. This is the moment that altered the course of Harry's life and so many other lives as well. And Harry, through the eyes of the man who on the night in question cast a piece of soul inside of him, is seeing it all play out, watching the greatest horror of his life on playback. Voldemort pushes past the gate and burst open the front door, causing James to sprint into the hall. From the book, it was easy, too easy. He had not even picked up his wand. James Potter was a great wizard. Would he have stood a chance if he'd had his wand? Who knows? He never got the chance to find out. James shouts words that Harry had heard before, drawn forth by the Dementor's cruel power. Lily, take Harry and go. It's him. Go, run. I'll hold him off. Voldemort laughs as he issues the killing curse, laughs at the prospect of a wandless man trying to fight him, only seeing something to mock, never once thinking of what readers surely are, how brave James was in his fear, 
absent protection to stand tall and try and buy his wife and son, even a single second of time. From the book, James Potter fell like a marionette whose strings were cut. <sighs> Voldemort hears Lily screaming from above, quote, but as long as she was sensible, she at least had nothing to fear. In The Prince's Tale, we will learn that this refers to Snape's pleas to spare her life. Voldemort climbs the stairs, amused by Lily's audible efforts to barricade herself. Quote, she had no wand upon her either. How stupid they were and how trusting, thinking that their safety lay in friends, that weapons could be discarded even for moments. There is so much here to unpack. The idea, first, of wands as weapons rather than as shields, which is how Harry, through his one true love, Expelliarmus, so often uses a wand. What a contrast, one of many that we will see over the course of this book between the way Voldemort and Harry think about the sticks of wood they hold in their hands. And of course, there's also the idea here that trust would be enough, that their safety lay in friends, and how that's anathema to Voldemort. But is, for Harry, one of the central themes not only of this book, but of this entire saga. Pettigrew's betrayal didn't diminish the value of friendship. It enhanced it, enhanced the worth of a real bond, of real trust in other people. Harry must rely on Hermione and Ron and Neville and Luna and Ginny and so on to complete this quest. Safety may not lie in friends or anywhere in a time of war, but success does. When Voldemort forces open the door, he sees Lily with Harry in her arms. When she sees him, she puts Harry into his crib and stands in front of him, her arms wide, a literal human shield. From the book, as if this would help, as if in shielding him from sight, she hoped to be chosen instead. Ah, Tom, such ignorance, such hubris now and always. And it will be his downfall. She begs for her son, words we've heard before from the Dementors, Paul. Quote, not Harry, not Harry, please not Harry. He returns words we've also heard, telling her to stand aside, calling her a silly girl, showing that she needn't have died and thus opening a path for her sacrifice. She begs him to kill her instead. She asks him to have mercy. And reading this, we can't help but think of Dumbledore atop the tower in his final moments of life. Quote, it is my mercy and not yours that matter now. Or of Ned and the madness of mercy that undid him. Mercy is not a part of Voldemort's life. Right. It is foreign to him, a weakness for others to indulge. One cannot show mercy without showing compassion, and one cannot possess compassion without caring about other people. Quote, Lord Voldemort has never had a friend, nor do I believe he has ever wanted one, Dumbledore told Harry last year. His willingness to give Lily a chance was a calculation, an effort to perform a service for one of his followers so that he would be able to maintain that person's loyalty. It's transactional. He doesn't care about Lily or Snape. He doesn't care for anyone. He certainly doesn't care for Harry, whom he views as a threat, the physical embodiment of the prophecy's promise. He could have forced her away from the crib, but it seemed more prudent to finish them all, the book says. He ended Lily Potter's life because she wouldn't stand aside because it seemed prudent. And in doing so, he allowed her to offer an unbreakable protection that Dumbledore set in stone that would not lift until Harry came of age and left her blood relations home. Old magic, blood magic, the kind of magic centered on love and sacrifice, the kind, in other words, that Voldemort makes no effort to understand. Lily falls like James as green light fills the room and Voldemort observes that the baby has not cried. He points the wand at Harry's face. Quote, he wanted to see it happen, the destruction of this one inexplicable danger. The danger that has tested and shattered Voldemort's faith in himself led him here, led him to this. Now baby Harry cries and the tears recall those of other children at the orphanage and Voldemort cannot abide this. He shouts the words, Evada Kedavra, quote, and then he broke. He was nothing, nothing but pain and terror. The spell, 
were bounded by Lily's sacrifice forced back upon its caster, ripping him from his body. This part of his soul, his consciousness, carrying on, tethered to existence by his horcruxes, by the experiments that he boasted about in Goblet when he said, quote, I who have gone further than anybody along the path that leads to immortality. We hear a moan, no. And we realize from the description of the snake on the filthy floor that we're now back with him in the present day and back in his mind reliving the horrors of that night in Godric's Hollow and that Harry is coming too. And then in a stretch of chapters full of horcrux clues, full of sweater-shifting insinuations and signs of Harry's connections to these objects, we get perhaps the biggest hint in the entire series. Quote, he had killed the boy, Voldemort thinks, and yet he was the boy. A piece of his soul, we will soon learn, latching onto the closest living thing in proximity when his body was destroyed. A piece of soul forging the connection between Harry and Voldemort. A piece of soul fulfilling the words of the prophecy that Voldemort set out to stop. A piece of soul setting Harry on his path of burdens, positioning him for the ultimate sacrifice still to come. Voldemort thinks back to, quote, memories of his greatest loss, not realizing how true that even is, not realizing, just as Harry doesn't yet realize, what Voldemort really lost to Harry that night. And just as he's mourning, quote, he looked down and saw something, something incredible. It's the photo of the merry-faced thief that Harry dropped. The image that will allow Voldemort, just like it allowed Harry, to piece together the identity of the man he saw in Grigorovich's memory. We switch back to Harry's perspective, called to by Hermione, who's saying it's okay, imploring Harry to wake up. And as he says, no, I dropped it, I dropped it realizing that he's just handed Voldemort one of the keys that he's been seeking. He opens his eyes and sees that he's in a tent on the lower bunk. From the book, he was drenched in sweat. He could feel it on the sheets and blankets. He can tell that time has passed. You've been ill, Hermione says, quite ill. They left hours ago, she says. She used a hover charm to get him to the bed. He asks if he's been unconscious. Not exactly, she says, in her fear and discomfort as she describes it. feels worse than whatever actually happened to Harry. She's clearly afraid. Yeah. You've been shouting and moaning and things, she says, and she couldn't remove the locket from him on her own. It sealed itself to him, another massive clue, one piece of Voldemort's soul merging with another, forcing her to use a severing charm. You've got a mark, she says. It's not his first. She used Dittany on the snake bite on his arm. He looks at the scarlet oval over his heart where the horcrux had been. It's in her bag now, and she's afraid to wear it. Who wouldn't be? He apologizes for leading her into that horror. She reminds him that she wanted to go too and that she believed Dumbledore had left the sword for him from the book. Yeah, well, we got that wrong, didn't we? She asks him what happened as he explained that Batilda was the snake, recalling Lupin's words about facing magic that they'd never even imagined. He thinks if he'd only killed the snake, a horcrux, it would have been worth it. But they achieved nothing, nothing but more pain and misery. And he's about to find out how much he really lost when he offers to go stand guard, ordering Hermione to sleep. Quote, no offense, but you look terrible. Thanks, Harry. He asks for his <laughs> wand. And she doesn't reply. He asks again. She bites her lip and begins to cry. Where's my wand? And at last she reaches out and hands it to him. It's nearly severed in two. Harry, quote, took it in his hands as though it was a living thing that had suffered a terrible injury. He could not think properly. Everything was a blur of panic and fear. Then he held out the wand to Hermione. Mend it, please. His desperation is palpable. Harry, I don't think when it's broken like this, please, Hermione, try. Reparo. It splits again as soon as he tries to use it. His mind is blank. 
from the book. That wand had survived so much. The wand that had protected him so often from Voldemort because of the connection with its brother. The wand that Harry, despite everyone else's protests to the contrary, is sure, rightly, acted of its own free will to save him when he faced Voldemort in the air. Harry truly believes that this wand is a shield and soldier alike, that its sentience saved him. And without it, how can he possibly have the faith to challenge Voldemort again, knowing that it saved him so many times before, placing more faith in it than his own skill and courage? He's just seen a vision of Voldemort killing his parents when they didn't have their wands. Hermione tells him it was her fault, that the blasting curse she cast to help them escape must have snapped in. Harry tells her, it was, of course, this is an accident. Stop. But he says without feeling, quote, he felt empty, stunned. He says they'll find a way to fix it, but she tells him she doesn't believe they will. And Harry thinks of Ollivander in captivity and Gregorovich dead and wonders how he'll find a new wand. Well, he said in a falsely matter-of-fact voice, well, I'll just borrow yours for now, then, while I keep watch. Her face glazed with tears, Hermione handed over a wand, and he left her sitting beside his bed, desiring nothing more than to get away from her. Mal, it means, you know, living beyond death, living after podcasts. So please just toss the invisibility cloak over our heads and lead us into the restricted section to teach us what we need to know about the Potter family. The Potter family patriarch was a 12th century wizard named Linfred, delightful, who lived mostly among muggles in Stinchcombe, a small village in southwest England. Linfred didn't have a last name. But due to his tendency for pottering about in his garden, his neighbors called him the Potterer, which over time shortened to the Potter we know and love. But Linfred had good reason for wandering his garden. It was extensive and well-stocked with magical plants, as Linfred spent much of his time experimenting with herbology and potions procedures. Quote, Linfred was a vague and absent-minded fellow whose muggle neighbors often called upon his medicinal services, rolling rights on Pottermore. He straight up sounds like a weed dealer. He really does. (laughs) Oh my God. The quote continues, none of them realized that Linfred's wonderful cures for pox and ague were magical. Unsaid in the quote, but presumably there. And available on ease. Yes, ease MD. <laughs> and over time, Linfred's experiments helped him build a hefty fortune to hand down to future generations. Historians, Rowling writes, quote, credit Linfred as the originator of a number of remedies that evolved into potions still used to this day, including Skelligrow and Pepper Up Potion. My goodness. Those are big ones. That's great. Good for him. Linfred had seven children and his oldest son, Hardwin, married the granddaughter of Ignotus Peveril. Iolanthe. Iolanthe lived in Godric's Hollow and had inherited the family cloak, a secret but obviously prized possession. And it is through this union that Harry, hundreds of years later, gained one of the Deathly Hallows and an ancestral connection to Tom Riddle, who descended from a different Peveril brother. Over the years, the Potter family continued to pad its coffers of galleons, and though they weren't the most well-known or powerful family in Magical Britain, on two occasions they placed a member on the Wisingamot, The first, Ralston, lived in the 17th century and supported instituting the statute of secrecy rather than going to war against muggles. And the second, Henry, who went by Harry as a nickname, appeared on the legislative body in the early 20th century. Henry was a direct descendant of Hardwin and Iolanthe, meaning he held the cloak. And Rowling writes that he, quote, caused a minor stir when he publicly condemned then-Minister for Magic, Archer Evermond. 
that's a great name, who had forbidden the magical community to help muggles waging the First World War. Wow, interesting. In the coming years, this minor stir would cause reverberations through high wizarding society as the Sacred 28, yeah, list of pureblood families, which was completed in the 1930s, omitted the Potters for political reasons drastically cutting down on their dating options. Well, I guess really expanding them if you think about it. (laughs) The list creator didn't want to recognize a family that had so strongly supported muggle rights. But the Potter line survived such elitist exclusion. And Henry had a son called Fleamont, which was the maiden name of Henry's mother. Already the beneficiary of multi-generational wealth, Fleamont enlarged the family's vault even further, though a lot of good that did the Weasleys, you know? Rowling says he quadrupled it by inventing Sleek Easy's hair potion. If only Harry had used the family's creation, whose slogan, quote, two drops tames even the most bothersome Barnet, implies that it might have actually done something about the perpetually unruly hair upon his lightning-struck head. Anyway, Rowling writes that Fleamont sold his hair potion empire later in life for, quote, a vast profit. But he and his wife, Euphemia, weren't truly happy until they had their first an only child, James Potter. James's parents died from dragonpox between James and Lily's wedding and Harry's birth. But the Potter line continued. From James came Harry. And from Harry, three more children. And the Potters lived on, now both wealthy and famous worldwide. Jason, mend it, please. Repair, uh, repair. It's not working. <laughs> but we need to split our nuggets, not our wands. And if not our souls, by sharing seven of our favorite insights and observations from Hallows chapters 15 through 17. Because seven remains the most powerfully magical number. I'll go first. Number one. The trio discards the possibility that Voldemort would have hidden a horcrux in Albania, with Hermione saying, quote, there can't be anything there. He'd already made five of his horcruxes before he went into exile, and Dumbledore was certain the snake is the sixth. We know the snake's not in Albania. Well, of course, we must note that Voldy made six before going into exile, albeit inadvertently, but that's not the only key here. While our pals are right to say that no Horcrux is stored in Albania, the makings of one once were. The trio was wrong about Voldemort's travel history. He had been to Albania before his exile, heading abroad after charming Helena Ravenclaw's ghost into sharing the story of her death. And in the forest where she led him, finding Rowena's lost diadem, which he transformed into a horcrux that he later hit at Hogwarts. This is all much to Ron's relief, by the way, who's like, Albania, Jesus. (laughs) Number two, (laughs) speaking of hiding horcruxes at Hogwarts, when Harry and Hermione are arguing about the viability of Hogwarts as a hiding spot, Harry says, quote, Dumbledore said in front of me that he never assumed he knew all of Hogwarts' secrets. Delightfully, Dumbledore said that during the Yule Ball and Goblet of Fire while talking, incidentally, at the Room of Requirement which is precisely where Tom hid the Horcrux inside the castle. Silly, hubristic riddle, thinking he alone knew of that place. Wild shit. Number three, still more on Horcruxes. When the trio eliminates the orphanage site as a possible hiding spot, Harry thinks that Riddle wouldn't have hid one there, in part because he, quote, saw grandeur or mystique in his hiding places. And then Harry thinks about some locations that contrast with the orphanage and better fit the bill, like, quote, Hogwarts, or the Ministry, or a building like Gringotts, the Wizarding Bank, with its golden doors and marble floors. Ding, ding, ding. Yep. Harry isn't 
even consciously considering Gringotts as a real possibility for a hiding spot here, but he is so tapped into Voldemort's psyche, so aware of the way that he thinks, that he has inadvertently stumbled upon another actual hiding spot. The cup, we will soon learn, is in the Lestrange family vault. Of course it is. With the cuck, Rodolphus, just saying, yeah, fuck my wife, use my vault, whatever you need. Rodolphus, I have need of something. (laughs) Your vault, where I'd like to store this priceless treasure. And also, will you take it there so I can have some alone time with Bellatrix, your wife? (laughs) Very tough look for Rodolphus. (laughs) Number four, when Harry, Ron, and Hermione learn about Ginny, Luna, and Neville's sword-stealing attempt punishment from Phineas, Harry thinks of the Forbidden Forest detention. Quote, he felt relieved. He'd been imagining horrors, the Cruciatus curse at the very least. We learn from Neville later in the book that this is exactly one form of punishment now in use at Hogwarts under the abusive Kara regime. Number five. There is some important foreshadowing in the overheard conversation at the riverbank about Xenophilius Lovegood publishing that he believes Harry and that others should help Harry, which will end up leading to the Death Eaters kidnapping Luna in order to try to silence and punish him. Number six, when Harry and Hermione are talking about whether it will be possible to mend Harry's wand, Hermione speaks Ron's name aloud for the first time since he left. This matters. When Ron returns to them, he'll tell them that in this moment, he heard her voice coming out of his pocket, specifically out of the deluminator, which led him back to them. Number seven, Harry's wand seems unfixable here, but as the famous words from the story go, all was well. At least it will be eventually. When Harry's mastery of the Elder Wand leads him to beating Voldemort, he decides not to keep the Death Stick, but rather uses it and its immense power to mend his Holly and Phoenix wand, leading the wand in hand, quote, rejoicing at their union. Mal, where your treasure is, there will be your podcast also. Every episode, we're going to honor the person or idea who captivated us the most, and today we're dishing out some last-minute points and awarding the House Cup, too. James and Lily Potter. Of course, it's just an incredible thing to be in Godric's Hollow. You know, we always knew, of course, how immensely brave they were, but seeing every moment of their last stand, seeing the details of how they tried to resist the Dark Lord at the cost of their own lives makes us appreciate their sacrifice even more. To actually see it, I remember just being nailed to my seat reading this. Lily, wandless and seemingly defenseless, being unwilling to step aside, ironically resulted in Harry receiving the ultimate defense, the ultimate protection of her blood, which was crucial to sheltering him. Also, just seeing what their legacy and their lives meant to people we see with the war memorial and the messages all over the Potter home, the fact that the home has been left there is a testament to their bravery. The esteem in which the wizarding community holds Lillian James is really, really remarkable. Also, this is an obvious observation, but we can't let it slip away. They were obviously such good parents and loving parents to their son. Obviously loved him very much. It's really wonderful to just see them interacting with him. It's really great. Just the sheer fact of them interacting together, sharing moments together is extremely special. Their love for Harry reaches across space and time. They are the reason that he is the chosen one. And their love will carry him through the darkest moments of the journey to come. Incredible stuff. Woo! Yeah. Well, friends, we get it. You choose Isaac Lee and Zach Cram, our indispensable producer and researcher. 
We hope that you had as much fun as we did today, that you were as excited as we are for the rest of this journey, and that you'll join us again next time after the Thanksgiving holiday when we will be discussing chapters 18 and 19 of Deathly Hallows. Until then, remember, the last enemy that shall be destroyed is runtime. You want me to come upstairs with you? (sighs) Hermione, she wants me to go up. Harry, what? (laughs) Yeah, I mean, she's... Hold on, she's got a whiff of her. (laughs) I mean, she wants me to go up there. Hermione, this seems legit. I don't know. The sword's up there? Harry, literally, what the fuck are you talking about? I'm sorry, Hermione. The locket is just beating against my chest right now. I'm going to go up there. I don't know. It's, oof, I got to whiff her again. I'm going to go up there and just see. Okay? I think it's a good idea. Harry, okay. 